Right now, though, it is time to talk cricket. Uh, we cross to London to catch up with Adam Collins. He's the SENZ, uh, SEN cricket commentator, I should say. He did call the first test in Brisbane between Australia and South Africa. Come on in, Adam. How's Blighty treating you, mate? How are you? I'm very well, yes. Nice to be home, as it were, in London. It seems weird to say that, given I've spent the last two and a half months uh, commentating on the cricket in Australia. But uh, such as it is with my life split across the two countries, I- I've arrived back in London for the uh, the shortest day of the year in terms of sunlight. I think the sun went down at about 20 to 4 this afternoon, which is quite the contrast to what I had in Melbourne over the weekend, or Brisbane, as it were, uh, during that brief second test match, the third test match. Third of the summer, first of the South African series. Yeah, indeed. I, I, interesting to see, you know, the South Africans complained about that just being too green. Um, and I think a lot of Aussie fans were telling them to harden up and up in sooks. Uh, but I see now that the ICC <laughs> have come out and uh, graded the pitch below average. Richie Richardson, who is a match referee, says it was not an even contest between bat and ball. I share that view. Look, I think that um, I get frustrated by the parochial nature of pitch debates. Um, it feels like sometimes that... Uh, the national flag waving when it comes to the pitch stuff is worse than anything when it, anything when it comes to barracking for sides around the world. But um, yes, the, my observation, um, the commentating on that test match at the Gabba, was that the contest between bat and ball was offset by the pitch. Now, it is clearly, as, as has been described by various pundits, an outlier. I share that view. Um, this is not the way it normally is at the Gabba. It clearly wasn't cooked up to be this way to be to the advantage of the home team because South Africa have got as every bit a good a pace bowling attack as Australia do. So it wasn't like um, a stitch up in order to engineer a certain result. It was, I'm sure, uh, the consequence of the, the climate uh, in Brisbane. It's been a cooler spring there, as I'm advised, and it's been wetter. And it just meant that the, the surface they ended up rolling out was not as um, hard and true as we might expect at the Gabba over the years. And that meant the soft parts of the pitch on day one, where the ball marks were um, were hardening up on day two, that's where you were getting the volatile bounce. That's why it became so hard to bat in the second innings for South Africa. They were dismissed 99, for 99, sorry, the second time around. And Australia lost four wickets on the way to chasing 32. So, you know, it, when you see a test match where 15 wickets fall on day one, which was a record at the Gabba, and 19 for in two sessions on the second day, and it's all over by, yeah, not even four o'clock on day two. It, it is right to scrutinise the wicket, but but I don't expect it'll be an ongoing feature of what we see at the Gabra. I'm sure it's a one-off. Yeah, you'd hope so. You'd hope so. I mean, uh, we have uh, the Basin Reserve here uh, in Wellington, and often it looks like what that Gabba pitch looks like, but it doesn't play that way, if you know what True. Yeah, absolutely, and, and, and that's what I said to Daniel Vittori when interviewing him on SEN Test Cricket before day two, that... Um, I was joking with him saying, you know, what's it like being a new Australian now as the Australian assistant coach as a proud Kiwi? And his response was, well, you know, out in the middle yesterday, it felt like he was at Hagley Oval in Christchurch. So um, <laughs> given that the surface was so green. But you're right, sometimes that can be deceptive in New Zealand because underneath the green covering, it's quite hard. And, and thus, if you don't use the surface on the first day, it can, be, it can make for a long, long day in the field where... Um, in Brisbane, it was kind of a bit different to that. It, it was soft and green on morning one, but the conditions actually got more difficult the deeper we got into the test match, which, I mean, the the, um, the curiosity there for me, and we'll never know because um, it's in the absence of the counterfactual, I suppose, but it would have been even harder to that on day three and day four, I suspect, um, given those ball marks were so pronounced in, in the softer wicket. 
Now, you mentioned the South African uh, bowling attack. I mean, Rabada's four for 13 in that second innings when, you know, Aussie uh, net just four to win was pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do look at the South African batting lineup, though, and I think that's where the difference between these two sides are. I mean, uh, Temba Bavuma coming in at four feels like about two places too high. What do you, what do you make of the South African <laughs> batting depth? Yeah, I agree. I mean, there, there have been collectively two centuries in that entire South African side outside of Dean Elgar, who's made 13 test tons. But all of those test entries for Elgar came before he was test captain a couple of years ago. So he's had a noticeable drop-off. He's dropped 10, 10 runs. His average has dropped off by since becoming the leader of that South African team. And beyond him, they are fragile. Uh, uh, Cyril Irvia is a 33-year-old opening, and I think he's anti-spot through domestic runs, but he's made one test entry this year. That's his lot. Um, Rassi Vanderdussen has been playing test cricket for four years and yet to post three figures. You mentioned Temba Bavuma. Um, he's their second most experienced player and he's made one century in 53 test matches. And I know that centuries are a little bit arbitrary to an extent, but it, it's also not a bad measure of match-winning capacity or match-winning potential. And you're right, inside their top six right now, with the exception of Elgar, who has fallen off a cliff somewhat as a test batter in the last couple of years. I think he averages 30 in that stretch of time when he was well into the 40s before that, um, they just don't have that match-winning ability in their top six, which means they're really relying on their fast bowling. And their fast bowling is brilliant, and it has won them a number of test matches this year, including a series victory against India. They beat England at Lords. They're the only side to beat uh, the the invigorated Baz bowlers, if you want to call them that. Um, Only one team's beaten them, and that was South Africa at Lords in in a bit of a fast bowling shootout. So... If they get it right with the ball, they can still um, be a real bother for Australia. We saw that at the Gabba. The issue is going to be, can they ever post a competitive title um, across the next two test matches? It's, it's, It's difficult to see how, when up against Australia's attack as good as... So, I mean, if you put yourself in Dean Elgar's shoes ahead of the Boxing Day test uh, at the G, um, you win the toss. You're putting Aussie in, in that in that case to try and knock them over cheap? Yeah, definitely. And Elgar said at, uh, at Brisbane that he would have batted first had he won the toss. I don't believe him. I mean, I think that um, when you lose the toss, the easy thing is to say that, oh, well, we would have done that anyway. I think in practice, he would have taken advantage of the, of the lively surface and bowled first, even though, as I said before, it was probably better for batting at the very start but it was deeper in, into the into into that first day and into day two. But nevertheless, at Melbourne last year, Australia won the toss and bowled first, and they bowled at England in, inside two sessions. And I would say that even if the Melbourne surface is harder than Brisbane, and it should be, that on the basis of what we saw at Melbourne last year, and indeed even in the T20 stuff that finished recently, it's a far more sporting surface at the MCG in the last two or three years than it has been in 20. In the last 20 years, especially um, around 2017-2018, the Melbourne test pitch was absolutely dead and they put a lot of work into it to liven it up. And in the last few years, you've seen ball dominate bats. So I would say on that basis, if Dean Elgar wins the toss on Boxing Day morning, he is duty-bound to bowl first and see whether they can land a a number of blows on that first morning uh, and hope that from that point, they're in a position of strength to push on and do what they can with the bat, with their limited resources to keep the game even. If they're sent in again, um, then I think they'll be under the pump big time. Uh, speaking about the Australian batting lineup, uh, there's one bloke whose name 
pops out a lot. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about him and whether or not his time is done, and that is David Warner. He got a duck and three in Brisbane. Uh, against the Windies, he didn't really fire in either Adelaide or Perth either. Um, yep. He really is struggling for runs and struggling for form. Given he's 36, how long do you reckon he's got before the decision gets made for him? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, I, I, I don't think they'll make the decision for him. I, I, I think maybe they should. But I can't see it happening. A player of his status and stature, and um, and I suppose you know, let's be honest. David Warner holds the nuclear codes when it comes to what happened in in that Newlands dressing room in 2018. So um, I'm not saying that's the reason why they wouldn't punt him. By the way, but he needs to be handled with some care and some respect. And I don't see them sacking him. However, um, I also think that there might be a conversation had with him. Remembering it's his 100th Test match at Melbourne, so. That's a significant milestone. He could finish up in Sydney. The challenge for Warner isn't so much the next two weeks, although it will be tough. It's the fact that he's going off to play in England and India away, which are both incredibly challenging tasks for any Australian batter, um, not least someone who is in decline. And, and look, it's okay to be in decline when you're six, right? Like mm. his best cricket as a Test player is is gone, and that's fine. Like that is the life cycle of a Test cricketer, and I don't think that. It needs to be viewed through the lens of him being, you know, oh, he's no good, you've got to go. It's more like, well, okay, he's in decline, but are his diminished returns still superior to what someone coming into the side would likely be? If it wasn't India in England, I think the answer would probably be yes. That David Warner, a limited David Warner, with all of his experience to draw down on, all of his match-winning efforts of the past, to that muscle memory, if you like, I think if it were anywhere but India and England, you'd say, well, you'd back him. If they were going to have a relatively quiet winter or an easier task in the winter, you might say, well, there is another 12 months there for you. The challenge that Warner's got is that if he is in decline, then up against the outstanding spinners in India, Ashwin and Jadeja, not to mention their seamers these days, on surfaces that will turn from day one. And then to England, where he made, I think it was 93 runs in the entire series back in 2019, and he will be up against the same bowling group there on surfaces that will nip around. Um, whether that might provide pause for thought for, for Warner after reaching his milestone test, especially if he doesn't make bulk runs. Uh, and even if he does, maybe he might see it as an opportunity to sign off at his home ground in Sydney the week after um, and to, to hang the boots up in this format of the game. And even if he were to make a big score at Melbourne and or Sydney, he might see it as a great opportunity to finish up in front of his home fans at the Sydney Cricket Ground while still continuing on as a white ball player, mindful that the the, um, the 50-over World Cup in, in India is in October. He'll be one of the first names on the team sheet for that. And he's already expressed his desire to go around for another two years as a T20 player. So David Warner, if he were to finish up as a Test cricketer, doesn't end his international career. It is simply him uh, parting ways with one of the three formats. And Warner has always found it um, easy to balance and, uh, and move between the three. But again, this simply reflects the fact that he's now 36 and you can't do everything forever. No, you can't do everything forever. It's a good call. Now, you are in England. Uh, what has been the reaction to England being the first uh, team to clean sweep Pakistan in their own backyard and uh, the baseball phenomenon? It's fairly staggering, isn't it? They won one of their 17 test matches, their most recent 17 test matches, ahead of them hosting New Zealand this year at Lords, which we did on SEN, SENZ uh, back then in June. And I think that when New Zealand rocked up, the expectation was that um, the, the Black Caps would do pretty well, but they got swept 3-0. Uh, then South Africa got done 2-1. They won 
a test match, a, a standalone test match against India at Edgbaston, which was a thrilling affair. So they had a, a test summer at home where they won six of seven and dominated most of those wins. Some thrilling run chases in there as well, especially against New Zealand. Then they move on to um, Pakistan and, and beat them 3-0 in very, very different conditions. That means they've gone on to win, I think it's now up to 9 of 10. They've won 9 of 10 with some of the most exhilarating cricket you'll ever see. It beggars belief that this is the same side who we saw in Hobart in January this year when they were beaten in two and a half days in that day-night test match to finish the Ashes and they were one foot on the plane. Those two days in Hobart following that, that final test, they weren't able to get a plane out, so all the players were hanging around on days four and five with not an awful lot to do. And they were, they were, they were a broken international team. Um, it was only right to uh, look deeply into the eyes of those players and work out, try and get to the bottom of what was going on, not just with them, but the system that produced them. And now the inspired leadership of Baz, Brenda McCullum, and the right captain in Stokes, those two are, it feels like they're meant to be together. Those two, they're so well suited with the, with the type of game they wish to play. And the fact that they see themselves as ambassadors for Test cricket, they, they both love the longer form of the game and think that, in a very competitive marketplace with so much, not just other forms of cricket, but other sports to choose from, that they need to make test cricket as attractive as possible. And you've seen that in Pakistan. They went across the entirety of the series in Pakistan at a run rate of five and a half and over. And I think all bar two of their um, 14 players used had a strike rate in excess of 93 with the bat. It's a bewildering set of numbers, a beautiful set of numbers, you could say, in terms of what they're, they're achieving at the moment for English cricket. And I think the amount of attention in world cricket that's drawn towards this side could only be a good thing. And, and it's going to be interesting to see how sides around the world now respond to that. I know when I was in Pakistan earlier this year covering the Australia series, they made a decision to kind of win on Pakistan's terms, batting at two and over and trying to win the, the arm wrestle across 15 days. England have won 3-0 doing a radically different thing that nobody thought was possible. So... Um, immense credit to them and looking forward to seeing um, how they deal with the next challenges as they arise. They'll be in New Zealand soon on surfaces. It'll be harder to attack on from ball one. You'd expect that the New Zealand curators will make it um, to the advantage of New Zealand seamers. They'd be right to do so. And in the Ashes next year, well, that's going to be an absolute blockbuster contest between two sides nearing the peak of their respective powers. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I'll tell you what, though, Baz has done uh, the Black Caps absolutely no favours. But if you don't think the Black Caps are going to get a backlash from the series for Pakistan in their own backyard, <laughs> you're dreaming. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. It's, it's reasonable to say that Pakistan will want to um, will come out firing when they do play. It's just that, um, look, I think that it's worth noting that Pakistan aren't anywhere near as strong at the moment as we might think of them. Remembering they went to the top of the world in 2016 um, for the first time. They, they won a series, uh, well, they, they, they went two all in England, which put them up to number one in the, in the test rankings. And that was kind of their high watermark. They've been quite a poor side, really, in the last seven years. They've been most inconsistent. They rely on two, and I think in, in New Zealand conditions, that the Black Caps will go in raging hot favourites. Yep, they would. They would. We'll have to see how that goes. Adam, thanks very much for your time, mate. Uh, I know you've got a baby on the way. Good luck with all of that, and uh, happy, happy Thank Christmas. You. Thanks. I hope you guys have a, a wonderful cricketing summer.